This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's time for bookings. Kia ora. Welcome to Bookends with Ruth Todd and Moran Rutt. And today I'm talking with Claire Renault, who's a dress historian, written a sumptuous book about fashionable dress in Aotearoa, New Zealand during the Victorian age. And I also talked last week with Abbas Nazari, a wonderful tale of him uh, leaving Afghanistan as a young boy and coming to Christchurch. And he was to be appearing at the Word Festival this coming weekend with Helen Clark. And unfortunately, that event has been postponed. But I'm really hoping that when the Word Festival is rescheduled, this event will take place as well. After the Tampa from Afghanistan to New Zealand is the extraordinary story of Abbas Nazari. He escaped the Taliban as a young child. He was adrift at sea as a refugee for weeks on the Tampa and found home here in Aotearoa. The Nazari family ended up here in Christchurch, and Abbas is now a graduate of Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., having been given a Fulbright scholarship. Abbas will be talking about his book and his experiences with Helen Clark at the Word Festival this weekend, and she, of course, was instrumental in bringing him and his family here after that terrible experience on board the Tampa. Abbas, the opening statement in the prologue says that you don't think you've personally accomplished anything worthy of writing a book about, but I think you're being incredibly self-deprecating because what you've written about in this book is an extraordinary life, uh, extraordinary adventures, extraordinary bravery. And it's not just you, but it's your family as well. Tell me about why you were so reluctant to tell the story to begin with. Um, thank you, Maren. And it's a fantastic question to, to begin off with. Um, I think the whole writing process really took me um, took me aback a little bit. I was approached to write this book by um, Alan and Unwin a couple of weeks before I was due to fly out to the U.S. on my Fulbright scholarship. Um, and my first response was, uh, yeah, nah, you know, I rejected them uh, simply because I thought it was, uh, you know, who am I to write a book? Uh, what kind of story am I telling? You know, I haven't d- really done anything. And then they were very gracious in accepting that. And they said the offer will be on the table whenever you change your mind. And the more I thought about it and, and chewed over the question a little bit, the more I realized that perhaps this is a story worth writing and, and perhaps there is an audience for it out there. So I actually thought about it for a good six months before I got back to them and said, yeah, let's do it. And then you had um, lockdown to help you. That's right. That's right. So I was in the U.S., uh, at the start of 2020, when uh, the the COVID pandemic was starting to, um, you know, grip the world, um, and 
uh, I was, you know, prior to the actual lockdown, I was trying to plan my schedule, plan my day to the minute to try and find a couple of hours every day to really write. And then when the lockdown hit uh, in early to mid-March, and now I had all the time in the world. And uh, it was, you know, the silver lining to an otherwise grim time. Um, but it, writing uh, really became an outlet as, as uh, you know, I was stuck in my studio apartment in, in D.C. for 23 hours a day. And you discovered that you had more than enough to write about, I bet. So let's just go back to your early life in Afghanistan and and what it was that um, propelled your father to decide to take his family on this, um, f- you know, fraught and, and dangerous journey. That's right. Um, so I was born and raised in the, in the mountains of Afghanistan in a, in a province called uh, Ghazni province, uh, which is very mountainous. It's the tail end of the Hindu Kush mountain range, which is connected to the Himalayas. Uh, beautiful, idyllic lifestyle up in the villages. Uh, but obviously in the, in the early to mid-90s when Afghanistan was in the middle of a civil war, and then we had the arrival of the Taliban, uh, that idyllic lifestyle uh, and our, uh, then our village was, was disrupted in a, in a major way. And so we kind of lived through the 90s until the Taliban completely overran the country by 2000. <clears throat> and by 2001, the situation had gone to the point where we had to leave and, and seek uh, asylum uh, elsewhere, whether that was going to be within the country or another country. And we, as I detail in the book, we um, crossed the border into Pakistan and uh, stayed at a refugee camp there. Uh, for a number of months. Your father had to have, and your mother too, but your father as the mastermind, had to have extraordinary faith in the people that he was giving the money to, that he was negotiating with, that they would honour um, honor that and, and take you on from all these stops and you finally end up on a beach in Indonesia waiting for this complete rust bucket of a yeah. boat to take you <laughs> exactly <laughs> towards um, I tried to, Yeah, I tried to capture um, particularly my dad's desperation in in being forced to flee, and so you can kind of you know get into his head and and see him going through his network of contacts about who he can trust, who he can't trust, where he's going to be taking a risk, and and him coming to grips with that internal battle about you know, taking his family on this perilous, perilous journey. Uh, and so, and obviously, you know, my dad is the main character there, but, you know, my mum's right there every step of the way, you know, uh, pushing and pulling and make sure, making sure that he's thought through everything uh, to the best that he can. Um, and we say, yeah, you're right. And we, after months on the road, we find ourselves in Indonesia about to board uh, this tiny fishing boat uh, uh, to Australia. Then you, again, um, the whole family and the people on board the boat become part of this huge international drama because you ended up on the Tampa. And um, we I remember, but um, it was good to read this and be re-reminded of what an extraordinary 
standoff that was and what Australia did to try and stymie all efforts to to give you what is, you know, your, enshrined in your rights. That's right. That's right. It's um, One thing I make really clear in that is that the moment you mention the Tampa to, to folks who remember hearing about it on the news or, or saw it in the papers, they have a very particular view of it because everyone's on the outside and media coverage was very minimal and uh, everything was so controlled and managed. Uh, out of Canberra. And so now, for the first time in over 20, 20 years exactly, what you have is a story from the inside, what it was like for someone on that boat. And so uh, that is one of the reasons why I came to the realisation that perhaps this is a story worth telling, uh, because now you get the, the other side of it, the human story, the the, the, the on-the-ground perspective. And, you know, it's we need to be, as I say, reminded of of the terrible um, attitude, the uh, words fail me, actually. Um, and they they must it must have been incredibly um, infuriating for you, I suppose, yeah. to yeah, right. go through that and and put it down on paper, how much mm-hmm. effort went into Trying to make sure that you never reached um, yeah. your destination. That's right. Um, you know, uh, the writing process uh, was, uh, I, uh, I call it a, a deep and long search down memory lane because there were times uh, when I did have to kind of take a step back and, and, and kind of check my emotions um, because you are, you know, on the, on the sharp end of the stick here in terms of uh, an overpowering government who, who has taken a hard stance here. Um, so there was there was a lot of that involved. Um, but 20 years on, uh, you know, it's sad to say that some of those policies are still in place uh, and it doesn't feel like the needle has moved much at all. No, not at all. It stayed pretty much where it was. Exactly. Uh, so a book like this is, is not just timely, but but absolutely essential. So good luck in lots of ways brought you and your family to Christchurch. That's right. <laughs> and, you know, Christchurch has been home for us, been a fantastic home for us. And um, even though I've been living in Wellington or, and even living in overseas for the last couple of years, um, everyone asks me, where, where are you from? And I always say, uh, Christchurch, Christchurch is home. Well, you thrived here. Your whole whole family thrived. I, it's you know, it's just extraordinary how you took on all of you. You just arrived here and decided to take every possible opportunity. I mean, there you are, about two years later, third in New Zealand in the spelling bee. For goodness' sake, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's uh, that's you know that, that those particular chapters. Um, of the book about those early years and my favorite chapter in the book, which I call the Kiwi dream. Um, those are my favorite to write because, uh, you know, I was thinking about those early years and everything that we just go to on a, on a normal day to day basis, we, you know, as kids, we just jumped right into it. And it's only in hindsight that you see that, wow, we really, really got stuck in, you know, just taking in every opportunity with both hands and just, just rolling with the punches and, you know, if we get knocked down, we get back up. And it was actually a really, really joyous couple of chapters to write. And um, 
And I was thinking about who my audience there was uh, in writing that. And part of it was like, well, maybe it's to, to Kiwis and uh, readers who haven't gone through this experience to be like, wow, this is how you do it. But on the same, on the other side of the coin, it was actually to other immigrants and refugee uh, people of refugee backgrounds to look at it and be like, you know, th- these steps day by day are uh, cher- to be cherished and to be proud of. You know, I talk about, uh, you know, joining the local football club or going to the library or uh, getting a first job or, um, you know, moving out of state housing, for example. All of those things that we just kind of took in our stride are actually pretty momentous achievements uh, in hindsight. Oh, they were. They were. You've just got a master's in security studies from Georgetown University through your Fulbright scholarship so remarkable Abbas but you say that you hope to help children of refugee backgrounds build meaningful lives in their adopted homelands and I can't think of anybody better to be doing that sort of work Thank you um, you know the, the Masters in Security Studies from Georgetown has been an incredible uh, uh, two year experience in the US um, you know, when I signed up for it, I never knew what, you know, history would throw at us. I was in D.C., you know, at this, throughout the pandemic, uh, through the civil unrest that we saw last year, through the um, economic meltdown and obviously the, the election issues that followed. Uh, so my American experience has really kind of opened up my eyes to, to the whole plethora of American society. But to your second point, that's right, I think long term, um, I'd love to work in a in the field uh, helping helping refugee and immigrant um, uh, kids uh, build meaningful lives in their adopted homelands. Uh, whether that's navigating their I guess hyphenated identities to you know professional and career advice to um, you know social support. Uh, what that looks like, I'm not quite sure at the moment, but uh, that's definitely where I see myself working in. Well, it is a remarkable book and I'm so glad that you changed your mind and decided that you did have something to write about. (laughs) It's utterly absorbing and it's a huge tribute to your family and to you. So thank you, Abbas. After the Tampa, From Afghanistan to New Zealand by Abbas Nazari is published by Alan and Unwin. You're listening to Bookends on Plains FM 96.9. Dressed, fashionable dress in Aotearoa, New Zealand, 1840 to 1910, is the latest book by Te Papa curator Claire Renault. She is a senior curator in New Zealand culture and history at the museum, and she's been in the museum sector and since the 1990s. She's particularly passionate about New Zealand fashion history, and she was co-author with Douglas Lloyd Jenkins and Lucy Hammonds of The Dress Circle, New Zealand Fashion Design Since 1940, which was a finalist in the 2011 New Zealand Post Book Awards. This new book is fascinating. It's full of the most extraordinary garments, their stories, photographs, and so much um, information in there. I don't really know where to start, Claire. So where did you decide to start? Well, when I got my job at Te Papa, I hadn't been working in 
a museum with a clothing collection for quite some time. So when the dress circle was published, that's when um, I got my position at Te Papa. So I suddenly had access to a large dress collection and I increasingly became more and more interested in the 19th century collection and realised that there wasn't while there are academic articles and people have done bits of research here and there, there wasn't really an up-to-date sort of lavish publication around and it seemed like a good, you know, a gap in the market. Is this part of a of an exhibition to come? Hopefully. I'm working towards um, a proposal on a large-scale exhibition. Whether it will happen or not, I'm not sure, but I hope so. And we've just opened this week a small-scale exhibition um, inspired by one of the chapters, which looks at um, feather, feather accessories in fashion yeah, in I the want late 19th century. To, yes, I certainly want to talk about that. But 1840 to 1910, that's pretty much, you know, when um, Pākehā first came here and... Uh, suddenly Māori were exposed to a lot of Western dress and their uptake was pretty quick, wasn't it? Absolutely, and I think it's like in any culture um, people are always interested in new technologies and new materials. So, you know, prior to the formal settlement of 1840, of course, you know, there had been cook here and they had um, traded with um, blankets. There had been whalers coming and they often, again, they bought clothing. There were traders, etc. So clothing was often used as a, um, a method of um, trade and probably, I think, also seduction. So the book actually opens with a beautiful waiata by Rangi Tipiora, who is um, from the Ngāti Toa, and in that she's lamenting the loss of a lover who is leaving, and one of her lines is that, you know, give me some of your fine things to me, beautiful are the clothes of the white men. Yes. So that's sort of where I start. And again, for her, that initial intrigue definitely soured. She was one of the signees of the treaty and actually became very disillusioned with what was happening in the country, and she eventually actually eschewed um, European clothing and refused to wear it. There's a lovely story of one of the settlers coming on shore and being greeted by a Māori woman wearing her dress because her husband had got there first and traded it. Yes, I love that. Yes, she was quite horrified and I think quite upset because it didn't quite fit her properly <laughs> and exposed her, her back. And I think that's what I've also loved about a lot of the stories um, was Māori people, Māori very much adopted clothing in the way that they wanted to. So there's um, you know, lovely stories of women wearing petticoats as cloaks, of men buying um, women's cloaks and wearing them because, again, they came to, I suppose, the clothing very open without the sort of gender roles that Europeans had and all the codes around dress. So they very much um, wore European clothes however they wanted to and in quite, I think, playful, wonderful ways. There's so much you can tell from a garment, um, but it's not just the garments that you've gleaned the stories from. There's so much that goes together with the garments, the accessories, the the bits of, the, you know, the, the shop dockets, all those sort of things that have helped you put these stories together. Yeah, it's very much, I mean, the book is very much almost like a, a patchwork. It's 
created from a whole lot of fragments in a sense. So, you know, a dress will tell us, a, you know, a dress has a bit of a story here. It might lead to a line or two in a letter, um, information gleaned from shopping receipts. So, yeah, it's very much a patchwork of these little fragments of information stitched together to try and create a, a narrative. So how did you go about structuring the book? Because you haven't followed a chron- chronological order. No, it's sort of vaguely chronological, but not really. And I think um, with the dress circle, it's very easy to do it in a chronological way. But I think with the 19th century, I thought decided that wouldn't work because I'd be having to repeat you know, a lot of the information again and again. So I didn't want to have to talk about weddings, for example, in every chapter or balls in every chapter. So it sort of felt like um, it was better to work with types of garments and activities. Yeah. And I actually ended up, I wrote backwards. And, and most of the chapters <laughs> sort of have a basis in a particular garment that I really loved. Yes, well, tell us um, a, a little more about Feathermania because um, it's very topical and it's also very interesting to me because I've just uh, recently read a biography of Thomas Potts who oh. um, who lived in Governors Bay where I lived and yes. where I live at Ohinatahi and he was one of the voices speaking out against the... Um, the dreadful destruction of, of native birds. But, I mean, that's only part of that particular chapter. Tell us more about Feathermania. Well, Feathermania, that is a chapter that wasn't in my original plan. But the more reading I did, and I became quite interested in um, you know, ostrich feathers and the fact that we had um, ostrich feather farms in New Zealand. But we also had this amazing um, little spotted kiwi feather muff in our collection. And it turned out that we had a couple of letters between James Hector, who was the original director of the museum, and Thomas Kirk at the Auckland Institute. And he was in the letters, it's a correspondence about him sending some kiwi skins to Auckland to be forwarded to a taxidermist, a Mrs Yandel, to be made into a muff and a tippet. And then I found the receipt for it. So I sort of became more and more interested in, well, well who, who was Mrs Yandel? Who were these people making this type of material? And the more I dug, the more I discovered myself that actually New Zealand, uh, New Zealand was very much part of this whole um, international plumage trade. And, you know, that muff that he had made wasn't just a one-off or an unusual object. Actually, we were sending, you know, thousands of kiwi skins to um, London to be, you know, um, bought by the sort of clothing market and fashioned into muffs. And then in, also in New Zealand, we had um, a range of what they called feather furriers that were um, manufacturing um, muffs and accessories out of bird skins, both for the local market and the international market. And Is with one of those, oh, sorry. No, no, carry on, carry on. And then in Wellington, we had a couple, um, Hector and Elizabeth Liardet, who, again, James Hector picked up on. And James Hector was the commissioner for a number of the the New Zealand section of a number of international exhibitions. And he invited the Liardets to exhibit their work internationally. So, you know, that was a, those were government-backed exhibitions. 
So their work, you know, again, they specialised in uh, New Zealand land and seabirds, um, so, and particularly albatrosses. But um, at that Philadelphia exhibition, you know, you had their amazing selection of muffs and collars and cuffs. And then above it, um, someone had hung, you know, plates from Buller's Boots book. <laughs> so you could very much see those exhibitions were very much about promoting what natural resources the country had to offer the world mm-hmm. and what they could be transformed in. So we were very much promoting our birds as, as you know, fashionable materials. There's one muff made out of a penguin um, skin that is just extraordinary. I, you know, it gives you the heebie-jeebies now thinking about it, but it must have been highly prized because of the beautiful um, golden colour of the of the breast of the bird. Yeah, and there's been much discussion about that muff. Right at the end of the book, Claire, you have a section on the conservation of dresses and accessories and how you got these remarkable garments ready for photography. I found that particularly interesting um, because I don't think people realise just how carefully you have to work with these objects. Exactly, and you know, I am very lucky at Papa. We have a number of textile conservators and another person, um, Sam Gatley, who specialises in costume mount making. And yeah, it's a, an absolute art. And often the reason you perhaps don't see a lot of Victorian garments on display is that they do require a lot of care. And of course, a lot of our garments, um, you know, things like the waistbands begin to um, fray and give way. So things really have to be supported. Uh, linings, like within the, the riding habit that's in the the book, all the it looks great on the outside, but all the interior lining was shredded. So um, one of our conservators had to put in a sort of another lining over top, so we wouldn't tear it when we mounted it. So yeah, a lot of careful work has to be done. And then with Sam's work, she is um, she built actual bespoke mannequins. Um, again, a lot of the garments, you know, their waist size is tiny. They have um, sloping shoulders, so you can't put them on a contemporary mannequin. The shoulders are often far too wide. So um, she made very tiny little mannequins that she could slowly um, and carefully pad out for each garment. So, yeah, each each dress form is bespoke. And that's remarkable. Um, but you must have had a huge amount of fun. I, I hope it was fun choosing all the quite extraordinary photographs and 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 the garments that are in this book because it's just such a, a wonderful display of 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 our history and so much you can learn from looking at garments from that period. Yeah, and I think it's very much like um, fashion is the premises of the book, but it's very much about um, women and their lives, whether their lives as um, makers or wearers or um, businesswomen. So it's, yeah, so while it is about clothes, it's also sheds, I think, light on a lot of aspects of our history. Well, thank you for doing the work on that for the mahi that you've put into it, Claire. It's a, it's a wonderful um book to own and to look at. It's a joy. Thank you. Thank you so much. The book is called Dressed, 
Fashionable Dress in Aotearoa, New Zealand, 1840-1910. It's written by Claire Renault and published by Te Papa Press. And join us, Moran Rout and Ruth Todd, next Tuesday on Bookends on Plains FM 96.9.